Hi, I'm Abby Krisner from Fist Fight in the Parking Lot, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. You lucky son of a bitch, you. Welcome to episode 143 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. Episode 143, we're going to introduce you to a band coming from the great city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're going to introduce you to Fist Fight in the Parking Lot. We're going to talk to vocalist and guitarist Abby uh, in just a moment. And then for all of you fans of the 80s Bay Area thrash scene, we've got author Brian Liu who, with a uh, partner, co-authored a book called Murder in the Front Row, and if you are a fan of bands like Exodus, Slayer, Megadeth, Metallica, this is a must-own book, uh, sort of a coffee table hardback book full of some of the most candid and uh, kind of the coolest behind-the-scenes p- pictures of the early, early days of the bands, uh, early, like, 82, 83 area. Um, really, really cool book. So Brian was uh, cool enough to get on the phone with us and talk all about his new book. So before we get into our interviews, we're going to play a track from Fist Fight in the Parking Lot. This is from their debut CD, which will be out in the month of February. This is a tr- track called S&M. <laughs>
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to the show from the band Fist Fight in the Parking Lot. I've got Abby on the line. How are you doing, Abby? I'm well. How about you? I am fantastic. Hey, um, you guys have your full-length album coming out here in the month of February, so I thought what better time to get one of the hottest local bands on the program. So. That's great. Thank you. Great. Do you want to talk about um, maybe the history of the band? I mean, obviously, the, the, the first question, I remember standing at the Social Distortion concert and, and um, hearing the name of your band, and I was like, that is the coolest damn name. you want to give us a story on where that name came from? Uh, sure. Well, the, the band got together um, very organically. We weren't really looking to start a band, but the, the four of us came together. Naturally, my brother-in-law is the drummer, so saw him quite a bit. Yeah. And the other three members of the band had actually been in Mojo Filter together for okay. 10 plus years. And I had previously been in the motorcycle. So we'd all played together and there was a relationship. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time that we actually just said, let's just jam and see what happens. So we started doing that um, early November, or late November a few years ago. And we would get together every Sunday and play. And we were throwing all these different names around. We were like, oh, we should be Sunday enemies. Hmm. And we're like, no, that's not it. And then we started saying we should have a really silly name like Sunday Friends. And then we'd be really heavy and it would be so cool. And we just really got stuck on that band name and didn't know what to do. And then a few weeks into that process, then Crooked Vultures was on Saturday Night Live. Everybody in the band are just huge Josh Homme fans. Like, anything he does is gold. Mm-hmm. So, since Sam Crooked Vultures was going to be on Saturday Night Live, we all watched it in our respective homes, and they did this skit, the very end of the show, where um, Dave Grohl was on drums. There was a wedding band playing, and it was a completely inappropriate father of the bride situation mm-hmm. where he's going to get the old band back together, and instead of singing his daughter a love song, they sang a punk song called Fist Fight in the Parking Lot. And we all thought it was so funny that we yeah. emailed each other, like, can we use that? Can that be our band name? And Somebody honestly, the only thing that almost deterred us was the length of the name on the flyer. <laughs> but other than yeah. that, we're doing it. Through it. You, you know what? I, I Actually, I remember um, a couple of years ago when I first found out about Deathlam, I thought, you know, this is, this is the best local band's name I've ever heard. But you guys, I think, no offense to Deathlehem, but kind of sneaked it out. Cause, <laughs> There's a know, lot of bands with great names. Deathlehem is definitely one of them here. Yeah, but it's a great play on words. So you mentioned you got your, um, or you would previously play with the motorcycles. Was that kind of your first exposure to playing in a band, or have you been doing this kind of all along? I started playing in high school, but whenever you're playing in high school, you're basically down to cover bands and classic rock songs that you want to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I played uh, shortly in an alternative band for a while, and then um, whenever the motorcycles had a vacancy and they were looking for somebody else, um, that happened. I mean, that was six years of my life, so that was probably where I fell, feel like I cut my teeth the most in terms sure. of getting experience on really good shows. Um and becoming a better player. And, um, you know, now I feel like there's elements of all of that experience coming into Fist Fight, in addition to everything that the guys in the band bring to the table from years and years of playing. Everybody's a seasoned musician in the band. Sure. Now, had you done lead vocals in a band prior to this? I did some some lead vocals in the motorcycles, but that was always like a three-person kind of shared vocal thing in every Everybody had their own kind of um, strength. Yeah. 
for where they would sing. But this is the first time I've done it by myself, which is its own challenge because mm-hmm. those scratchy vocals, you know, you got to learn how to do that over and over again. You can't just keep blowing it out every time. Yeah, you've got to learn how to do it. Learn how to do it when people are smoking. Learn how to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's- <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think you hear a lot of people talk about that. You can you can do those kind of vocals in a studio when you're resting between songs and have some warm tea or whatever, but when you're up on stage and, and the energy, well, of course, the, the adrenaline probably helps fuel that yeah. as well. Um, the album itself, when did you guys start um, the writing process that, that of the songs that became this album? We started as soon as we got together to jam. So it would have been, mm-hmm. I, I believe it's about two and a half years ago. Okay. If I'm, if I'm not forgetting too much timeline, which my short-term memory is awful, so <laughs> I might be. But as soon as we got together to jam, uh, we wrote a song that day, and that was um, called The Lone Gunman, which is on this album. And it was just a really nice process. Every couple of weeks, we just add something else. We were playing a couple covers just to really lock in with each other. And it, it wrote itself pretty easily. But then we started recording it at, um, again, my brother-in-law's studio. And what, that's where we record as well. So it's kind of, I'm sorry, that's where we practice as well. So it's nice that whenever you come up with something on the spot, we have a full studio. We can just hit record and keep everything, you know, in the moment. So that yeah. we can use it later. It's a really nice um, setup that he's got there. Yeah, that's the kind of brother-in-law I wish I had. Wow, that's that's awesome. Yeah, because you know, so many bands, I try to you know either use a little uh, you know Zoom or something like that to record ideas, and then you're going back for all these little uh, SD yeah. cards and stuff, trying to figure out what do we do. It you know, <laughs> so that's great. Now, you did not actually record the album at his studio, then? We we recorded it there. Okay. Um, and then we gave it to um, John DeZubin, who's in a band called Sistered, to mix it, okay. and. John did an awesome job. I mean, he he captured what we wanted, um, which, oddly enough, I think every band that goes into the studio wants a really clean and crisp uh, product. Mm-hmm. And we kind of didn't want that. We kind of yeah. wanted it to sound a little um, unpoliced. We wanted it to sound um, a little more live. And it wasn't recorded live, so kind of post, that's a little more difficult to achieve when you do have everything separated nicely. Yeah. Um, But John did a great job, and he was really um, open to our ideas and did what we wanted. I mean, he was, was like, very integral to getting the CD to sound the way that it does. And then Zach Moore uh, did the mastering on it. He's also doing a lot of intervenous bands like, um, like Vulture and Invader. He's also a very talented guy, so those... Those two forces coming together helped us get what we wanted. Yeah, I mean that's plus. I mean, you, you, like you said, with the, having the the family member with the studio is going to give you the ability to spend your money you on the money. Save some money for sure. Well, I don't know if you save money making an album. You just you spend it other places. It seems. Yeah, exactly. You know, but, exactly. So, um, the 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 process of making the album. Then, I mean, did you guys? You want to? I mean, for those knowledgeable of recording, do you kind of lay these down like drums, bass, guitar, or, and then you put your vocals on at the end? Yeah, and what was nice is like you know, my brother-in-law. His name is Chris. He's not just Chris. always known as my brother-in-law. I'll, well, I'll call him Chris. Yes, for or uh, Rudog is probably what he would Ru- prefer. So uh, Rudog would 
we'd get a, a click track ready to go. We'd all okay. have a beat on what the tenth of the song was going to be, and he would lay that down. Bass is next. We would really had fun layering guitars, and Jason, the guitar player, is very creative mm-hmm. and one of my favorite guitar players because he's just so damn good and he's so, he's a soulful player if he doesn't mind me saying that um but he he was really he went nuts with just layering guitars and i did my best to copy him and take that kind of gusto and just play around with weird sound effects and just see what we could get um then of course vocals which i had fun with because i got to layer a lot of stuff um yeah, I mean, it was, it was a cool process, but we did it the traditional way to answer, your, I guess, your original question. Yeah. yeah, and I have to say, I mean, the one thing you mentioned, uh, the drums, but uh, the one thing that kind of stuck out to me, at least on listen number one, was, was the bass is actually pretty interesting and, and very well pronounced in, in the in the mix. Uh, was that kind of a design? Johnny, <laughs> I'm sorry, Johnny Metal, he's the bass player, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, that's okay. I mean, did you guys, I mean, was that part of, of the goal was to, to kind of bring that bass into a point where it was, you know, it's not like an old Van Halen record where you have to question if it's even there. I mean, did right. you guys kind of put that into, in your wish list, you know, we want the layered guitars, but we still want to be able to hear the bass? Yeah, first initial mixes of the album might have been traditionally more clean and you can hear mm-hmm. a lot of the guitar and vocal stuff. And... That was one thing that uh, John DeDubin really helped us with because we wanted that bass cranked. And Johnny Metal did some really cool stuff, things that I didn't even know were in there. And so we were sitting down um, with John DeDubin and we were cranking it up. And all of a sudden I was looking at Johnny Metal being like, that's the coolest part. I didn't even know that was in there. So it's nice to really be able to hear that. But I don't, I mean, I don't think it takes away from the guitar parts or the vocals or anything like that, it's, it's a, an excellent... No, it, 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 it is, and it, it's it's nice to hear that. I mean, as a as a person who listens to, to death and black metal and all kinds of other right. metal, sometimes the bass is either one of two things. It's either in your face or it's disappeared, and it was nice to have a, that blend. I, you know, my hat's off to the mixing uh, in that album just to give you that balance. It's, it's very well done. Now, um, you guys obviously have been in playing some relatively uh, decent-sized gigs around the city of Pittsburgh. You have a premiere event for the album. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. It's going to be at the 31st Street Pub, which is on uh, Penn Avenue. I think everybody knows the pub by now. Um, yeah. Very legendary 31st Street Pub. Um, and we're going to have that show with two of our favorite bands, Sistered, which is the band that John DeZubin, who mixed our record, is in. And they are phenomenal they're extremely gritty they have all of the um passion of kind of punk rock but there's this other element to it that gives it that kind of angst of metal music and you ha- it's one of those bands that you have to see live but they're just aggressive and cool and mm-hmm. every time we've seen them we've just always known that when we had the cd release party that they had to be a part of it mm-hmm. um the other band that will be on the cd release party is chuck Seda, who I can't think of a better term for them than organic because they're no BS. Um, they work their butts off. Um, they're, they've become friends of ours over the years, and we genuinely love their band. What they create musically is awesome, and as people, they're amazing to play with. So those two bands were like no-brainers for the um, CD release party. So I'm really happy that we get to have 
all three bands on the bill. Yeah. And then uh, I'm we're gonna try to have a couple of tricks up our sleeves to keep the uh, the release interesting. I think we'll have some uh, guest friends jump on stage and and jam some of our tunes with us, and might try to see if we can pepper in some new and interesting covers. We're just kind of pulling that together now and awesome. seeing how fun we can make the night. Excellent. Now, you, you alluded to something with uh, Chuck Spade, and I know we had uh, a member of the band on there not all that long ago. It does seem to be that there there is a bit of a, call it a union or a brotherhood amongst quite a few of the, the, the Pittsburgh bands that I know yeah. when we started in 2009, I didn't really see. Uh, have, have you felt that kind of evolve over the last two, three years? You know what I have? Um, I don't think... It's not like I haven't seen it in other time periods in mm. Pittsburgh where there just seems to be um, a, a more communal feeling with it. Mm-hmm. But there's been a discernible change over the last couple of years, for yeah. sure. And I think that, that Chuck's Beta is a part of it um, because I feel like Chuck's Beta has reminded us of why we do this. And, yeah. and it's because you love music, you love sharing music, and you love your friends, and you love sharing your friends. So you put all that together. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're cool enough to know the difference between it's not a cutthroat, my band has to be better than your band, here's what the order is, my band has to make more money than your band. It's never been like that with them. And I feel like their other bands are taking cues from Chuck's Beta and being like, oh, wow, I don't have to be a dick yeah. at a show. Like, and I'm going to promote somebody else's band because I like what they're doing. Yeah. That that definitely has changed things. And then the Pittsburgh scene, the Intervenous Music Collective, all of these other entities that are sharing resources to just promote the bands in Pittsburgh. It's it's kind of mind blowing that everybody's being very um, selfless about it. Yeah, it think. is. It is really you know very exciting to watch, and I think certainly some of the. Um, success in the hip-hop community in Pittsburgh certainly mm-hmm. I think maybe served as a wake-up call to say hey you know there, there's th- this doesn't have to be no man's land this doesn't have right. to be forever the you know the small market town that, that people ignore um, you know there have been obviously some bands over the years that have come out of this area have been successful but it's been a, it's been a little while I mean obviously yeah. Rusted Root had enormous success nationally um, but it's been 15 years. I mean, it's been a while. So sure. it's good to see that come back. And yeah, there's, some, there's some eyes on the city. It might be in different genres, but that doesn't mean that there's not eyes on the city. So yeah. they'll have to be working together. is much more beneficial than, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know what you speak of when you're talking about, you know, bands wanting to make more money. You, I, you know, from the very first time I think I ever remember going to a, you know, a local battle of the bands and people are, bitching and moaning about the PA right. system and what the order of the bands that go on. And at the end of the day, if your band has a good set, it's going to come through. And exactly. That's, that's, that's great to hear. So uh, beyond the record release, do you guys have any plans? I mean, you guys seem like you would be an awesome fit for something like the Warp Tour if you could get, you know, on one of those stages. Or do you guys have any master plan? Our, I wouldn't say our master plan has gone to the level of, you know, seeking out things like Warp Tour. Which I take as a compliment. I don't. I don't know that we would fit there, but um, I wouldn't be opposed to things like mm-hmm. that. But we've been working with uh, Screaming Crow Promotions um, as well as Intervenus, and they've really been setting us up on a lot of touring. So whenever we look at March immediately after the release, we don't have a single weekend 
off, and now April's starting to look like that. And I know fairly soon here it's going to be May. So I think the biggest game plan is to get out on the road as much as possible um, and then go again, you know, and just yeah. keep going back and hitting those places and just trying to um, certainly not uh, abandon playing in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. but to – try to extend that that run and we'd love to take the bands that we love with us and just like let's go ruin cleveland let's go ruin other cities <laughs> how much work could that take to ruin cleveland <laughs> yeah that's a good point <laughs> yeah yeah take take uh take the pittsburgh to the masses yeah and that's that's a great point because i think that's one thing that the you know your your previous band the motorcycles you know when you look at you know, there were a few of those bands that, you know, as a Pittsburgh, you didn't even realize, but they're kind of tearing it up in, in New York and some other places. Yeah. And that's certainly a way to go. And look at Love, Betty. They've they've had very good success, you know, by getting outside of the region. It, well, it's a better way to get some kind of affirmation of what you are doing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you can play uh, in your city a lot. So, I mean, you know, yeah. any band is more than welcome to do whatever they feel works best for them. But, you know, you're, you start off with friends and family as your fan base, and then you hope it grows from there. But the nice affirmation about going out of town is that you know nobody. And then you get to see, you know, if what you're doing is resonating with people that have no reason to like you. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's a very cool experience. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then, but yeah, but it's good. I mean, you mentioned keeping it keeping it at home as well, which is good because I know there's been some bands that uh, have kind of gone on the tour away from the region but then never play here or, or become almost completely uh, yeah, unknown I here. I mean, look at a band like The Letter Black, which enjoys enormous success, but when they come home, they don't necessarily get a hero's welcome or you know even necessarily a decent-sized club to play in, so it's, it's good to keep that balance. Abby, can you give us an idea of where... Um, where people can find out more about the band and where we can get our hands on the CD if we're not fortunate enough to make it to the 31st Street for the debut? Yeah, we're at fistfightintheparkinglot.com, and also because everybody is on the Facey space, we're on <laughs> we're on there as well at facebook.com slash fistfightintheparkinglot. Yeah, is there a band out there that isn't on there? Are you guys still on MySpace? Just as a you know what? I think that we are. Um, but it's just been one of those things, and you probably noticed this in the last few years. I can't, I can't get anybody to go to MySpace. I think we, yeah. <laughs> so it's just mostly relying on things like uh, Facebook and Reverb Nation and, and the website proper. Yeah. Hey, well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've got a very busy schedule, and I want to thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I always wanted to learn to play guitar, but never had the time. Then I heard about Progressions Music Studio. Progressions introduced me to an entirely new and convenient method of music instruction. They brought the music to me. The instructors from Progressions Music Studio came to my home with their knowledge and expertise, which saved me time and money. They worked around my schedule and tailored a program around my needs and skill level. Best of all, I learned to play music like a guitar king of the 1960s. We didn't spend all of our time with drills or tunes from the 1860s. Progressions Music Studio offers a lot more than guitar. In fact, they have instructors for almost all instruments. Now I can rock it out on my electric like never before. Just imagine what they can do for you or the budding musician in your family. Don't make excuses. Make music. 
Check them out on the web at progressionsmusicstudio.com. That's P-R-O-G-R-E-S-S-I-O-N-S, musicstudio.com. Or call 724-777-4678. Don't miss Rise Against with a day to remember and title fight Sunday, May 6th at Stage AE Outdoors. This show has been moved from the Trip Total Media Amphitheater. All previously purchased tickets will be honored. Don't miss Rise Against with special guest, A Day to Remember. Sunday, May 6th at Stage AE Outdoor. Tickets on sale now at all Ticketmaster locations. Charge by phone at 800-745-3000 or online at Ticketmaster.com. For more information, visit StageAE.com. Rise Against, originally scheduled at Trip Total Media Amphitheater, has been moved to Stage AE Outdoors, 400 North Shore Drive. Rise Against, now at Stage AE. All previously purchased tickets will be honored. Join us May 6th at Stage AE for Rise Against and a day to remember. Brought to you by Promo West North Shore, Coors Light, and the Exit 105.9. All right, I want to welcome you back. Uh, We're going to do a little segment now I used to do and had gotten away from, and shame on me. We're going to talk about what I like to call the Ring Report. As many of you know, Iron City Rocks is a member of a network of podcasts called the Cast Iron Ring, which you can find at castironring.com. Uh, I want to talk to you just briefly about what's going on on some of those shows. Uh, we've got uh, Focus on Metal, who are uh, always doing some really great shows on kind of the classic new wave of British heavy metal type of uh, content. Uh, recently they dissected some of the bands who would be sort of the next wave of the, quote, big four. You know, who would have been number five, six, seven? that kind of thing. Also, they are running an interview with Don Jameson of that metal show uh, that uh, yours truly did not that long ago. Uh, Radioactive Metal. Very anxious to hear their new episode. It should be coming out any day now. It's got uh, Chuck Billy of Testament. uh, So you want to check that out. Uh, Signal to Noise has got uh, their latest episode features Paul from Boss Tone Radio. For those of you who are not familiar with Boss Tone Radio, it is a podcast done by the equipment manufacturer Boss, who makes guitar pedals. Uh, Paul talks about uh, pedals in incredibly detail. So if you're a gearhead, Signal to Noise is your place to go. That is hosted by Aaron, who also co-hosts Iron City Rocks with myself. So great stuff. we got the Bone Hand Heavy Half Hour, who did a uh, great episode recently uh, about the guitarist of Riot, who uh, passed away. So that is certainly worth checking out. Also, Bob Nalbandian uh, of the Shockwaves Hard Radio just released a brand new episode of Marty Friedman. Uh, Marty Friedman, uh, many of you might remember him as the guitarist of Megadeth uh, for a period of time. Um, so that will be of particular interest. Uh, Bob always gets the really cool guests. Uh, always so envious he had Dave Mustaine uh, on the show. So between all of the shows on the ring, we I think now have officially had every guitarist of uh, Megadeth join one show or another. So you want to check that again, castironring.com. Also look forward to a new show uh, joining the ring very, very soon. So without further ado, I'm going to get into an interview I just conducted with Brian Liu. Uh, Brian Liu co-authored a book called Murder in the Front Row. It is available on Amazon or bazillionpoints.com. Uh, the book is uh, basically two guys who knew Metallica way back when, the early, early days. Uh, Brian, uh, if my memory serves me right from reading the book, was actually present uh, when uh, Cliff auditioned for the band. Um, 
just take a moment and digest that one. Cliff uh, Audition from Metallica. Uh, he's got incredible photos. Uh, him hanging out with the guys from Metallica, including Dave Mustaine. Uh, Exodus Slayer when they were playing in these tiny, tiny little clubs in the San Francisco Bay Area. So really just a cool, uh, cool book. Uh, Ryan was the author of a fanzine for a period of time, wrote for others' fanzines. Uh, and it just a great, uh, took some really, really classic photographs to show in the book. Uh, as I allude to it in the interview, it's kind of like what you would imagine if you went to heavy metal college, what you'd get on your uh, 101 class for a textbook. It is a hardbound, um, I don't remember off the top of my head how many pages it is. It is full color, uh, just page after page of compelling photos. So without further ado, we're going to get an interview with Brian Liu, author of Murder in the Front Row. The show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to the show author of the book Murder in the Front Row, Brian Liu. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing great, thanks. Great. Hey, I hold in my hand a copy of what I would consider to be uh, the textbook for Metal 101, uh, an incredible hardback book filled with um, what seems to be, you know, a relatively, unfortunately, a very short window of time that these pictures and, and stories came from, but. Uh, an incredible time in you know kind of the the bear thrash scene, uh, and you were right there at the epicenter. So I wanted to you know talk to you uh, more about the book, but also you had some really interesting interaction with a lot of these bands. Can you kind of give us an idea of how you how you got into metal to begin with? Sure. I mean, um, you know, the co-author and I, Harold Harold Oyman, he's 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 also one of the co-authors. Um, and we both grew up in the suburbs of south of San Francisco in Sunnyvale, California, which, you know, is middle of Silicon Valley. At the time, you know, we met was in the early 80s, and, you know, it's, it was the start of the Silicon Valley thing, and, you know, very high-tech and, you know, very sterile suburbs. And, you know, personally, you know, I, I got into metal initially listening to the radio, you know, blacks. There were, at the time, there were maybe three or four major rock stations in the Bay Area, and, you know, they played the standard standard rock of the Tanya you know, Black Sabbath, Van Halen. Right. You know, those were those were ACDC. Like those are the bands. You know, as as it's been for generations, those are the bands who got me interested in the heavier music. And from there, I met Harold at um, the first club shows I ever went to were by the local band Y and T. And Harold and I. Um, met at um, a Y&T show, and you know, at the time, this was before Y&T be, kind of went off the rails, and you know, they they kind of became a kind of third rate. You, you, you can know, no offense, so, no offense to Y&T and their fans, but you know, at the when we first got into them, they were very much still a blue collar rock band from yeah. Oakland, and you know, blue jeans on stage, you know, t-shirts on stage, just a very basic rock band. And in the eighties, they kind of went with that hair metal look, you know, yeah. which, you know, to their credit, they got more success. But anyway, at the time when Harold and I met, you know, that's that was the first underground, quote-unquote, underground band who I ever found out about. And, you know, it, 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 was, it was a game-changer because I realized, wow, here's this amazing band, and I can go see them for $6 at this club, you know, and the club lets underage kids in, you know, you just had to, you know, get your hands stepped or whatever. But, you know, mm-hmm. I could be right against the stage seeing this amazing band and it, and up until that time rock stars and Eve had always been you know larger than life you know they're they're on the stage in front of 
twenty thousand people under you know just it was it was larger than life and here i here you could go see a band who engaged me as much in a small club and they were right there and i could talk to them after the show and from then on like from kind of that moment on that's when i started you know trying to find more underground bands mm-hmm. and it seems uh, obviously pretty early on you stumbled across what was kind of the mother of all underground bands with with metallica how did you how did you kind of enter their world um well you know at the time in the early 80s there you know there was a whole underground metal scene going on mm-hmm. i mean in in england it was a new wave of british heavy metal and in the bay area you know there was there was a, a small group of friends who i met and you know th- through the import record sections at like tower records you know we stumbled upon some of the the English um, music papers. The, the first one was called Sounds, and it was mm-hmm. a weekly hard rock kind of newspaper. And you know, they covered you know it was that was the first publication that basically coined the phrase "new Brit- wave of British heavy metal." And then Krang came out in like '81, and it was very much so an underground metal scene. So through Krang, you know, we ran pen pal ads right. because that's how you communicated with people back then. You know, no email, nothing like that. So I ran an email, uh, a pen pal ad in Krang, and you know I got hun- literally hundreds of responses. I mean, not just people from the United States, but a lot of people from Europe and you know England, Holland, Germany, France, like like-minded people. And mm-hmm. you know that kind of that's what was that's what the underground metal scene was. And one of the people I got a letter from was this guy KJ Dalton, who lived in Oregon at the time, and he was a tape trader. And, you know, we traded tapes back and forth. And one of the tapes that he got was the first Metallica demo, okay. um, Electro Leather. And he got that from a tape trader in Los Angeles, um, whose name was Patrick Scott. And so through KJ, he sent me the demo. And, you know, I made copies for my friends. And, you know, this was probably, I would say, late spring, early summer of 1982. And in September of 82, um, there was a Metal Blades record showcase announced at the Stone in San Francisco. And originally, the band Sirith Ungol were supposed to be, and and it featured bands who were on the first Metal Massacre album, and Metallica was on that album. So um, originally, Sirith Ungol were supposed to be on the bill, and I think it was like a week before the show, they dropped off, and Metallica were added, and KJ called me and told me, you know, that band Metallica is going to be playing at that Metal Blade show now. And so he was already in contact with um, Lars Ulrich and Dave Mustaine at the time in the band, and he, he passed on their phone numbers. So I called I called them, you know, in advance of the show, just saying, you know, it'd be cool, you know, my friends aren't really into your demo, you know, it'd be cool if we could meet you guys at at the San Francisco show. And, you know, it was just, it wasn't like Metallica, you know, Metallica were our age. We're, yeah. I think that's one of the things that people might find hard to comprehend when they first look at the book is we were all the same age, like the bands yeah. and the fans. So it wasn't like we met Metallica when they were on tour and they came through San Francisco and then the next day they're off to Portland or whatever. I mean, they were, they were just kids like us. So, you know, that September show in 82, you know, they just drew, we met them at the curb when they pulled up in front of the stone and the Lars used to drive like a AMC pacer <laughs> and you know, it was just, you know, they're, you know, and they popped out and they looked, you know, we're just kids. And so that, that was the first time I met Metallica was, um, before their first San Francisco show. And 
you know, I say in my intro, you know, they're the first band basically who I became friends with ever. And, you know, the first band who put me on a guest list, the first band, you know, I saw Soundcheck. So it was just, you know, very much a right place, right time yeah. situation. Yeah, no, you, were you a, um, a kind of a photography buff or is this just something you did? I mean, cause, you know, for those who don't have the, the, the book or haven't seen the book yet, I mean, the bulk of this book is just compelling photo after photo of, of a, a period of time that, that, you know, before Metallica kind of broke it wide open. Uh, you've got pictures of, you know, Exodus and Slayer and, and a lot of these awesome bands, but, um, how did you get in, into the photography aspect of all this? You know, at the time, you know, I was, at the beginning of it all, I was still in high school, so I was taking a photography class. And, you know, I've, at no time have I ever been a quote-unquote professional photographer. And, you know, the photos represented in the book are basically, you know, me taking a camera to a show. And, you know, back then you could just, even at big shows, you could bring a camera to a show. You didn't need a photo pass. You know, even at the big arena shows, you know, you could walk in with a big, telephoto lens and take pictures and no one would no one would care but I mean as far as the, the interest in photography goes you know I, I, I happened to take take a, a an elective class in high school and it was a photography class and you know and so I that's sort of where that hobby at the time came from and then it, it just happened that I decided to take pictures of you know bands starting with Wayne T again and then you know, Exodus and, you know, eventually Metallica, but it was very much just a, you know, when it came down to Metallica and the, the local bands, it was more a case of just taking pictures of my friends. It wasn't yeah. like, you know, I was on assignment and, you know, a little later it was when I started writing for the different fanzines. I wrote for Ron Quintana's Metal Mania fanzine for a while and then the photography side sort of became serious, but it, you know, it was never serious. It was more, you know, just taking pictures of friends at that point. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I think that's so cool. I mean, especially about your your photo contributions to the book is so many of them are, you know, well, there's great live shots, and you, you've got you know a very early picture of Bruce Dickinson, for example. But you've got you've got that sort of hanging out after the show, before the show, clowning around with the guys having, you know, an underage beer here and there. Uh, and I think that's what really makes it special. This isn't just, you know, someone from, you know, Hit Parader from 1984, you know, spewing out all their pictures that they had in their back catalog. You've got, you know, what, you know, in my estimation, appear to be more, like you said, pictures of your buddies. Uh, right. which, which really makes this fun. Um, for those you know who are maybe not young enough to remember uh, the fanzine, and, and you delved into your own fanzine for a period as, as well as writing for others, do you want to talk a little bit about what that phenomenon was like? Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of, again it's it's from another a, a different time, but you know in Europe, you know we were inspired, you know after, again going up to the Krang um, pen pal thing. We started getting letters from people in Europe who were doing their own fanzines. There was Art Shock, and to us they were they were fanzines, but to us they seemed like these major magazines because their production value was so nice. That there was Art Shock in Holland, which is still around, and there were different. There was Metal Forces in the UK. There was a um, then there was a magazine called Onfer in France, and we got those, and they were made by fans. It wasn't you know Krang was still cool, but it was obviously a major magazine. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we'd start getting these magazines from Europe, and they were made by 
fans. And then, you know, there were other fanzines that had started earlier in the, in the States. Like Brian Slagle had a fanzine for a while. Um, there were fanzines on the East Coast, and, you know, they were basically just, you know, fans talking about their favorite music. I mean, I guess it you know, was an early form of blogging. Like, um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a comparison, I guess, that fits to today. But, you know, it took a lot of effort. So, you know, Ron Quintana had his fanzine, Metal Mania, in, his, in San Francisco, and his zine just had a different vibe than the other metal zines were. You know, it was, he was very serious at, about the music, but he, he had a sense of humor about it all, and, you know, he would throw in a lot of pop culture references, like 70s kitschy stuff and stuff from the 60s, but I think in a lot of ways, um, Metal Mania was ahead of its time because, you know, this was before 70s kitsch was cool again. So this was, like, in the early 80s, and so, you know, it just had a unique voice where, you know, it was just, it wasn't like the fans didn't present themselves as the authority, like, you know, if, if like, if you're reading Hit Parade or Circus, it was yeah. just the kids, other kids talking to kids in print. And, you know, after I did Metal Mania for a while, a friend of mine, Sam Kress, and I, we decided to do our own fanzine, and we called it Whiplash. And um, thinking about it now, I mean, it, it's mind-blowing the amount of work and, you know, and a good amount of money that, you know, these us as 18, 19-year-old kids, like, actually went into it because it wasn't like, you know, you could do, a, you know, there was no desktop publishing or whatever. Yeah. And so basically, you know, we had we learned it on the fly, and, you know, the text for our fanzine, you know, other fanzines are more cut and paste, kind of more the punk rock vibe, like Metal Mania, but for Whiplash, we tried to do it like kind of, you know, a serious route. So, you know, it was a case of, you know, you had text, but, you know, how could you get it typefaced to put into a fanzine? So, you know, we had to take it to the the printing house and they typeset it and, you know, they, they did half tones on the photos and, you know, all this stuff like now, you know, you can do it at home, like yeah. with a scanner and all that stuff. But basically, you know, it, it was this whole insane process and then we had to learn how to do paste-ups because in order to, you know, get something ready for print, you had to lay the pages out and then on onto, like, cardboard basically and but then you'd have to pay attention to the pagination because you know the way magazines are bound so it it was just this whole other yeah you really it's like a lost art i think because you know there was that whole all that stuff but the thing that you know we're again we were kids we were like 18 or 19 but we were so passionate about these bands and and the music like it, it kind of just drove us you know, drove us to go to these lengths where, you know, I, you know, I was, I was supposed to be going to school and that's why I was telling my parents, but, you know, I wasn't. I was yeah. hanging out in San Francisco with my metal friends and like, you know, just, I mean, having fun. But then at the same time, you know, if I had applied, you know, all that effort that we did to putting this fanzine out, who knows what might have happened, you know, in a, on another, in another era, you know? Yeah, well. How did how did you go about dis- distributing the, the fans? That was the one thing. I, you know, you you think of a blog and you just put it up, and you know you've got Google and things like that to get people in. But how how do you 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 make this investment? You make this 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 magazine. How do you get it to the masses? Well, again, again, it was a special time back then, and you know, I was for again, it all goes back to the connections I made and my partner Sam made through our pen pals and. 
And we, we just met so many people through this, our pen pal network that we got in touch with, um, a distribution company. I think they're called East India. And okay. I think they're still, they're still around in some form or another. But at the time, they were like kind of one of the main, um, indie, uh, rec- record distributors. Okay. And, you know, they also started, distrib- they distributed fanzines. And so, they were the main distributor for us. You know, locally, you know, we would take, we took copies to the, to the local record store sort of sure. thing. But as far as, you know, have getting metal, um, whiplash distributed, it was through this company and they were based in New York. And, you know, again, it was just this thing, you know, we we're kids and we did all this thing and then, you know, taking a 200 pound boxes of fanzines as a post to UPS <laughs> and sending them to New York and then not, you know, and not really understanding not really having a comprehension of what that meant, you know, yeah. okay, they'll, they're going to distribute it. And it, it's interesting, like, it was only in later years, like, literally, like, 10 or 15 years later, and I and I heard from people, like, in France who told me that they bought Whiplash in a record store in France. Huh. And, and or, you know, somebody in Germany, like, you know, once the Internet started, someone finding me through my blog and saying, I bought Whiplash in Germany. And, like, it was only years later that I realized that I got a sense of how far it got distributed because I just thought like okay they're probably just putting it in the stores in New York and yeah because you know, that's where they were based and I didn't really have a comprehension of you know what distribution really meant yeah you don't consider France um, right you mentioned one place in there and it seemed like you saw you know uh, many many bands in this facility um, Ruthie's Inn do you want to talk a little just a little bit about what that place was and what it meant to the scene Sure. I mean, Groupies Inn, it's it, it been around for a while. Um, it's on San Pablo Avenue in Berkeley, near the um, Oakland-Berkeley border. And I guess it's always been kind of a music venue, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you know, blues club, things like that. And then in the early 80s, you know, it, it started hosting punk shows, so bands like Social Distortion and um, those kinds of bands are playing there. And it, it it's in, it's in a gritty area. It's in you know, typically, you know, how all those kind of venues usually are. And, you know, the the owner-operator was this, this man named Wes Robinson, and, and he started booking metal shows there, and I think the first one was probably 83, okay. maybe early 84. But anyway, so, you know, he started booking local metal shows, you know, with Exodus, and, you know, Slayer played their one of their first, area shows there and so over time it just became sort of like the, the clubhouse of the Bay Area scene I mean at the time there were, there were a lot there were probably five venues in San Francisco um, south of San Francisco and the East Bay where bands could play shows so there was a lot of venues but I mean, probably because of the location and just the vibe of Ruthie's in it just became like the clubhouse and plus you know underage kids could go in and you know Underage kids could score alcohol in there. I mean, yeah. You know, after after especially after closing after two, you know, if you were underage, like, you would get out. You could get alcohol. So it was that sort of thing where like it was almost anything goes type of thing. You know, up to you know up to a point, of course. Sure. But, and you know, Wes Robinson just it was just this special place where you know it's like I think it's the case of any music scene that has a thriving underground, you know, CBGBs for New York punks and, you know, maybe the mask in L.A. for L.A. punk, but for Bay Area metal, it was Ruthie's Inn because it was just this atmosphere. I mean, it was a, you know, it wasn't 
it wasn't a pretty club. You know, the bathroom could be a nightmare, but mm-hmm. it was just this place where you could do anything, and these amazing metal bands would come in and play, and yeah. it was just a hangout. Yeah. Um, you went on to be, become kind of the, 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 the go-to guy for the Megadeth fan club, correct? When that started? In the very, very beginning. I mean, it, okay. it's kind of almost, I mean, it's definitely, it's, I'm definitely a, very much a footnote in okay. all of that. But, but you know, when I was friends with Dave Mustaine when he was in Metallica, and mm-hmm. then when, you know, when he when he was kicked out of Metallica, you know, he came back to the Bay Area first. He, you know, the famous story is he was given a bus ticket, and then he came back to the West Coast. But he didn't go back to L.A. He came back to the Bay Area. And he hung out here for a while before going back down to L.A. to get Megadeth started. So once he got Megadeth started and recorded his first demo, you know, it's almost like he used the same template that he had seen work for Metallica with Megadeth, where, you know, he did the demo and even contacted some of the same people, and you know, myself and others, and, you know, to, to get his demo in circulation mm-hmm. with the tape traders. And, you know, I guess because I knew him and, you know, I'd been close to Metallica, he asked me to run their fan club. And this is very early on, like very early on, like like from their first demo maybe through their first album. Okay. And basically, you know, what all that meant really was um, Dave used my parents' house as his mailing address. So, okay. you know, I would get tons of email, um, tons of mail, you know, as as the demo was being distributed, and it had my address associated with it. So I literally, like, you know, just collected his mail, (laughs) and then, you know, maybe for a year, and then I remember giving him, you know, when he came back through town, I gave him literally, like, a a garbage bag, you know, a big garbage bag full of letters that people had written. Because people knew who he was, because the Metallica demo had been such an underground sensation, and it was interesting, you know, when we were working on the book, I kind of realized, like, Mustaine kind of used the same template in the er- in the very early days of Megadeth that Metallica had used. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I think that says a lot about, you know, how he became successful on his sure. own. Sure. Now, do you stay in touch with any of these guys, or is this, this all kind of, you know, in your youth? Um, I'm, I'm back in touch with Metallica. I mean, um, you know, Exodus... You know, Gary Holt, I'm still very much in touch with. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Metallica, I'm still in touch with. I mean, and that all came back around because in 09, when they were inducted into the Hall of Fame, the Rock and yeah. Hall of Fame, they reached out, you know, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they got nostalgic or whatever, but they reached out to a lot of the original fans. You know, it, it seems like they went through the, the their thank you list on Kill 'em All, and basically yeah. they found everybody on that list who was still alive or who could be found. And I've, all, I've sort of been in touch with their circle um, in recent years just because the fan club has asked me to contribute things and sure. things like that. But, you know, after 09, it, it's it's like they, they've they embraced their past again sort yeah. of thing. So, you know, um, it's, you know, and then they had their 30th anniversary uh, series of shows here in San Francisco, and it was pretty amazing because, you know, most of the original people, you know, from back in the early days were at the shows. Again, like, the band found them and invited them, and, yeah. you know, so it's... So you got a chance to see see some of those shows? Yeah, I went to all four. Oh, wow. To be honest, awesome. and it was, you know, it was, it was amazing, because, one, 
you know, how many bands have a 30th anniversary and they just simply go on tour? You know, like, this yeah. is our 30th anniversary tour. But, you know, Metallica, they rented out the most historic venue in their hometown and then invited as many of their heroes and hero, mm-hmm. you know, musical heroes to the show. You yeah. know, like Ozzy and, you know, Ozzy and Merciful Fate and, you know, it, it was just, it's just right. kind of mind-boggling because you know, how many bands do that sort of thing. So, you know, it's, you know, people, you know, I think Metallica are an easy target these days just because, you know, they do things their own way. But I think in the end, especially now, it, things seem to have come full circle with a lot of things where, like, you know, where this book, what this book represents. And, you know, in the case of Metallica, you know, I, I know that they they really like the, the book, you know, yeah. because, you know, not only my photos, but Harold... Harold in particular, he was very much around them. I mean, as you can see in, in the photos, his photos in the book, you know, he was around them a lot, you know, at home, yeah. you know, wherever. And, you know, it, when back then, you know, it was probably annoying to have a guy with a camera, <laughs> you know, taking, take, you know, pop, not paparazzi, but just, you know, some guy taking pictures of you all the time. And But then, you know, fast forward 30 years, like, you know, maybe it was a good thing. Oh, absolutely. And, and I was, you know, just kind of one final question. I mean, did you think back, I mean, 30 years ago or, or you know, whenever specifically the picture was taken, did you have a sense of, of any of these acts in particular or even just one of them that they were going to be something special? Not even necessarily Metallica or Megadeth, or maybe, but did you see somebody and you said, you know, this Gary Holt's going to be the guy someday? I mean, did you get a sense of where you what you were witnessing at the time? Um, no. Yeah. I mean, there's no way. I mean, again, like, you know, when this was starting, we were all just kids. Yeah. You know, the, the band, you know, were teenagers, pretty much. We were teenagers, and, you know, at the very early days, we were just kids hanging out, and our friends happened to be in a band, and, you know, but then, like, and, you know, getting, since Metallica are the biggest band to come out of that scene, but, you know, when Cliff Burton joined Metallica, it was definite, something definitely clicked, even to my young mind, but what did that mean? You know, like, it, yeah, the the band is better now, like, what does that mean? And then, you know, they, they went off and recorded their first album, and they put out this album, and like, wow, you know, Metallica has an album out. But, you know, again, in the days before the internet and stuff, How would you, know? you, you didn't know what that meant, because you, you didn't know that people on the other side of the planet were listening to them. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I think, like, you know, in the case of Metallica, the, the moment where I think we all realized, like, there was something, like, way bigger than we could ever comprehend was happening this and it's captured in Harold's photos in the book is they played a, a big outdoor stadium show here mm-hmm. um one of the Dan the Greens. Mm-hmm. And you know, they were like Dan the Greens are iconic here. They've been going on since the seventies and they're all it was before the day of the package tour, so Bill Graham presents would you know, they would be unique bills and they the the shows would have a theme and all this stuff and the Metallica played Played one in 1985 with the Scorpions headlining, and you know it. But a Dana Green for them to be playing a Dana Green, I know you know it. It was only like 20 minutes from where they lived, yeah. and they you know and Cliff and um, Kirk in particular, you know, they grew up going to Dana Greens. So for them to play a Dana Green was like a big thing, and then for us to see them play a Dana Green was another thing. But then the fact that they played and they just killed it. They just destroyed, and, you know, that was the first time we'd seen him. You know, again, it's kind of this weird thing where, you know, I got into the underground bands because, you know, you could be right up against the stage, and 
they were just regular people, and I'd just been seeing bands up until that point who were on those kind of big stages larger than life, and there were Metallica on a big stage, and they were larger than life. Yeah. And that was, like, kind of, I would have to say that was the moment where, like, it kind of hit me, like, something something big is going on here, but, you know, who knew how big it could yeah. become? Yeah, you really, I, mean, I don't know anybody could have went back. I remember is a, is a living in the East Coast seeing, you know, starting to see a buzz about Metallica and things like that, but I don't think anybody would have thought 25 years after that that they'd probably be one of the biggest bands on the planet. I mean, Yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing, you know. And Even to think that that style of music would have been, you know, that universally accepted, and obviously their, their, their musical style when they really broke it open in the 90s wasn't quite what you and I were witnessing back then, but uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's still pretty special to think. How big of a thrill was it when you saw Cliff Amal, the, the video come out, and... Do you, do you catch any glimpse of yourself in any of those clips? No, I, I don't think I'm in it. Well, I'm, you know, in some of the early shows, I'm in the crowd, yeah. but I'm not directly in it. But, you know, it was bittersweet at the time because, you know, as I mentioned in my intro in the book, you know, when Cliff passed away, that's sort of when I dropped out of the yeah. metal scene just because, yeah. you know, up until that time, it had been fun. And, yeah. you know, when you're a kid and you're having fun and then, you know, death, you know, he was literally pretty yeah. sure he was like the first friend I ever knew passed away and like you know it, it's that kind of reality check yeah. sort of thing so you know looking you know looking at that footage now it's amazing because yeah. it's you know it, it some, it's still sort of hard for me to comprehend yeah. just how iconic like yeah. he's become mm-hmm. in a lot of ways or just Metallica in general how iconic they are now sure. but you know I mean I think as a time capsule the Cliff Mall videos you know, that's as close as people are going to get to actually seeing him and kind of kind of getting a sense of what it was about. Because you know, you know, lots of musicians have passed, have died young. You know, but how many are like still? You know, kids are still trying to be like Cliff Burton. Yeah, yeah, the man definitely left a, a huge void. Um, you know, and you know, many would argue the band hasn't quite been the same since, but that's a topic for another day. Well, um, Brian, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule. Sure. I know you've got uh, things you've got to get to, and I want to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it very much. Promo West North Shore and Coors Light present The Avalanche Tour, featuring Shinedown. With special guest Adelita's Way and Art of Dying, Tuesday, April 17th at Stage AE. Tickets on sale this Friday at all Ticketmaster locations. Charge by phone at 800-745-3000 or online at Ticketmaster.com. For more information, visit PromoWestLive.com. Don't miss Shine Down Tuesday, April 17th at Stage AE. Brought to you by Promo West North Shore and Coors Light. All right, I want to thank Abby from Fist Fight in the Barking Lot and Brian uh, for joining us on the show. Uh, it was really kind of enjoyable uh, to talk to both of them, two totally different subjects, but two really cool conversations. I always enjoy when I get people that are fun to talk to, so it was really, really cool. Uh, I l- invite you to visit us at ironcityrocks.com. Uh, we'll throw up on the podcast page, we'll throw a link in there that uh, you can find Brian's book uh, and also Fist Fight in the Parking Lot. Um, if you really want to make it easier on yourself, go over to facebook.com forward slash Iron City Rocks. Join the fun. Uh, like the page. Uh, follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Iron City Rocks as well. If you've got a band, uh, you want to get in touch with us, even if you don't have a band and want to get in touch with us, Iron City Rocks at gmail.com or 
use the contact link on ironcityrocks.com. That webpage should take you to anything and all things related to us. Uh, also, want to invite you to check out an article I just had posted uh, that I'd written on guitarist Xander Demos. Uh, Xander Demos was on the show back, I'm going to say, July of last year. Xander is a guitarist who lives in the Pittsburgh area, an incredible uh, shredder uh, in his own right, but a very melodic player as well. I don't want to use shredder as a bad word. A uh, phenomenal guitarist. He is going to be releasing, uh, or has released, I believe, his debut CD, Guitarcadia. Um, and you can find information about that. But I had a chance to interview him for Guitar World. Uh, so that article is up on guitarworld.com. If you search for uh, Xander, which is X A N D E R, um, that'll be enough. I'm sure there won't be too many Xanders. Uh, Guitar World. Uh, if you click on my name, a John up at the top, you can get a list of all the articles I've written. You'll see that uh, we've tried to represent Pittsburgh pretty well. We've got Nick Katniss and uh, Anthony from the Letter Black, as well as Xander. Also, an article I wrote with uh, the bassist of Black Label Society, uh, John DeServio, and uh, article with Nick Katniss, and uh, the little article I wrote with a guy. Um, what was his name? Uh, Tony Iommi. So, I invite you to check that out as well. Uh, again, that's guitarworld.com, and uh, you can find all that information out. So many, many, many ways for you to get in touch with us. Uh, we would love to hear from you. We would deeply appreciate if you take a moment and give us some feedback in iTunes, uh, or better yet, tell your friends about us. So until next time, I want to thank you. Thank you.